thank you for being here today. How are you all both doing? Doing, doing great. Just great. It's a gorgeous day in Oakland. It is a gorgeous day in Oakland, gorgeous fall day. I wanted to start first with uh, Mitch. If I could just ask you, um, my research shows that you're a Brooklyn guy. What, what made you choose Oakland? You know, we were in San Francisco living and had our office there, and I could see that it was going to hit peak startup. This is five years ago. And we thought about where we really wanted to be, and we started looking at the East Bay. And we'd already been funding some groups and doing some work on the nonprofit side in Oakland, and we really wanted to place a big bet on Oakland. We saw tech coming here, which five years ago people thought I'd grown a second head, but now with Uber buying a 400,000-square-foot building, you know, I have my I told you so moment. But more than that, there's something fundamental about Oakland, uh, the diversity, the progressive political tradition, the kind of resilience, the opportunity to be part of really building something that drew us here. In a broad scale, what what are you investing in when it comes to Oakland? What What's the most important thing in your mind when you decide? Well, we wear three hats. So one hat is Kapor Capital, and we invest in tech startups with social impact. So one of the things we're doing is really actively investing in startups that are going to make the world, and more specifically, Oakland, a better place, that are going to close gaps of access or opportunity or outcome. So they might be education technology companies, they might be financial services, but all of them are gap-closing. The second thing we do is the Kapor Center for Social Impact, and that's where we do our community engagement efforts. And uh, we were amongst the first funders of Black Girls Code, of Hack the Hood, of the Hidden Genius Project. We started College Bound Brotherhood a number of years ago, actually when we were still in, in San Francisco. And the third organization is a nonprofit that I started in 2001 called the Level Playing Field Institute. And our signature program is SMASH, Summer Math and Science Honors Academy. We've always, for 12 years, had kids from Oakland as well as other uh, communities of color around the Bay Area. Awesome. So it's a three-pronged effort where you're just essentially looking for groups or looking to make investments for the betterment of the world, as you said, in Oakland as well. Um, my, my follow-up question to that is, uh, how do you make the case that tech companies need to hire in Oakland? Uh, talent, professionals, like how do you push them in that, that direction? So I've been working on issues of diverse and inclusive workplaces for, for my whole professional career. Like, I'm really boring. That's all I've ever cared about. My first job, which is actually where I met Mitch, was at Lotus. I had just finished my PhD, and that was my first job. And my job description was to make Lotus, the software company, the most progressive employer in the U.S. I mean, how cool is that, right? So this is the work I've been doing for for many decades, actually. So there's all of the platitudes that everybody says about diversity is good for business. But you look around tech and you look at how hugely profitable companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter's on its way to being profitable and all these behemoths. And they're staggeringly undiverse and they're doing just fine. So I think we really need to focus on – 
many different strategies to talk to them about why diverse em- employment is important and certainly why making a commitment to the community that they work in and hiring local is important. But we see part of our job as training that workforce because the easy out for all the tech companies for years and years and years has been, oh, it's a pipeline problem. We can't find any of them whoever them is. And so we're saying, okay, look, for 12 years, we've been preparing low-income kids of color, always half girls. They're ready. They're like the smartest kids you can imagine. They're ready for their entree into tech. So we want to help connect job-ready talent with companies that say they can't find diverse talent, but they're committed to diversity. We can help close that gap too. And is that just a matter of taking those individuals who've gone through that pipeline, per se, and basically showing those major companies that they are ready, these people are ready? I'm, I'm... Well, that's part of it. But, you know, there's this new phenomenon that lots of companies, especially tech companies, are paying attention to, which goes by the name of hidden bias or unconscious bias or implicit bias. So it isn't just about taking the right computer science courses and being ready, it's helping companies understand they are not a level playing field. They are not a meritocracy. And helping them look at all of the zillions of subtle ways in which they are biased and exclusionary, even though they think of themselves as fair and as meritocracies. So in fact, in Oakland, November 10th, we are sponsoring the first ever pitch competition along with Google for Entrepreneurs and a nonprofit called Village Capital that is looking to invest in tech startups that are leveraging technology to minimize, mitigate bias in all aspects of employment. So it's things like companies that will use software to go through tens of thousands of job descriptions and take the biased language out. What are the little cues about who belongs and and who doesn't? Or they'll go through performance reviews and they'll take the biased language out. How come a white manager uses different language when writing a review for an African-American or a Latino or an Asian versus a Caucasian? Or when they use different language when they're reviewing a woman of any background versus a male employee. So we think there's huge business opportunity as well as huge it's the right thing to do opportunity in helping use technology to eliminate bias. What she said. <laughs> awesome answer. That's actually what I was getting from the booth as well. Um, meritocracy, um, definitely a word that's um, thrown out a lot of times when it comes to jobs in technology. I was watching a video on YouTube from 2014 where you were speaking about, uh, it started off, the answer started off about meritocracy and also brought in uh, what you called bringing your whole self to work. And I was wondering, what are some of the barriers to people bringing their whole selves to work? And I'll, I'll ask both of you. Well, if a company is made up entirely of, let's say, recent Stanford graduates, maybe fraternity brothers, and there's sort of a bro culture there, and there's all of the cultural artifacts that go with that. Like if you're a parent and you have young kids and you want to go home and you don't want to, you know, go out uh, uh, drinking and, and, and partying or you can't engage in the kind of 
recreational extracurricular activities that the majority does, you're, you're going to feel left out. You've got you to check yourself. You can't actually be who you are. And if there's a lot of sort of loose uh, and disrespectful talk that goes around and people go, well, we're just joking. I mean, come on. Uh, if the dominant culture doesn't see that it can be unintentionally uh, offensive or exclusionary, of course, people are going to feel to survive here. I have to I have to check myself. And what we want to aim for is our companies where you don't have to check yourself at the door. You can be who you really are. Are we seeing any examples of that right now? Well, one thing I can tell you has been that there's been a uh, demand from the portfolio companies that we invest in to help them build this kind of inclusive culture. Some of the founders, in fact, all of the founders that we work with have that intention, but they're going to need some help in actually putting that into practice because they don't know. So at Cape Or Capital, we're about to hire a portfolio services director whose job it is to help companies build inclusive cultures. We think it's probably easier to build one from scratch than to take an existing big company culture and change it. They have to do their work too, but the opportunity for a new generation of companies where uh, inclusiveness and diversity is baked in to the DNA of the company from day one, those have the better chance of succeeding. And that's what a lot of people are thinking that with technology coming into Oakland, that building from scratch will give that opportunity to kind of combat that dominant culture. Uh, in your opinion, or your opinion, what's the first most important thing to do to overcome that, uh, the bro culture, if you will? Well, I think we need to help CEOs and founders hire for what we think of as competencies and not hire for what we think of as proxies. So let me give you an example. And, it, and it's actually a, um, a senior people ops person at Pandora who I heard say uh, a CS degree, computer science degree, from Stanford and having worked at Google are not skills. Those are things that are experiences. So that's the difference. If you see that on someone's resume, those are proxies. And you make huge leaps of faith that that means this person can do X or Y or is good at something or is smart. And so what we want people to do is really drill down to the competencies. What does it take to do this job? And do you have a way to assess that or to measure that? And we have one company that we invested in. That is doing exactly that. There's a very interesting piece of research from a few years ago about symphony orchestras. When auditions for performers were done behind a screen so that you could not see the gender of who was performing, mysteriously, orchestras started becoming more gender balanced. Now, in tech, a very crucial part of the hiring process is the technical coding interview where you sit with someone and they ask you questions and you answer them by writing code to solve a problem. So we've invested in a company uh, called interviewing.io that anonymizes the technical coding interview because it does it online. It's like the audition behind the screen. So you don't know the person's name or what they look like or their age or their education or anything. 
but you're interacting with them, you're typing back and forth, you're asking them questions, they're showing you what they can do in real time. And we think that that will make it more readily apparent who has what talent as opposed to what their superficial characteristics are. Um, that's exactly where I wanted to go with that. So you're, you're talking about anonymity. Oaklanders care a lot about transparency. Um, tech companies are no- notorious for keeping their information private. How will this play out? Well, I think there's been a real push in recent years for transparency and accountability. Um, and what happened over several years was unprecedented, which is that several of the big tech companies like Google, like Facebook, sued to not release their data. And so what's happened, even though we've been giving those companies a lot of credit for releasing their data, they're the outliers. They actually took extra steps, spent a lot of time and money to hide their data. All the other companies for all these years, Cisco, Intel, HP, have just been releasing the data to the federal government. So I think hiding the data about who you employ is no longer acceptable and that that the community has been educated. I think we need to work really hard on the pathways, though, and the definitions of what skills are needed, what the competencies really are, what the positions are. Because some people have been advocating and saying, well, it's too hard to train this whole new generation of engineers. Let's just make sure that the non-engineering jobs are diverse. There's a greater supply of accountants and lawyers and marketing people who are who are of all racial backgrounds. And while that's true, I really worry that in tech companies, it's really the engineering side of the house that has the power. And so while I would hate to see, this is something we've seen in this country far too often, where there's the front of the house that looks one way and the back of the house that looks another way, and it would be terrible if tech in Oakland followed that path. Um, I wanted to know your initial reaction when you found out that Uber was coming to Oakland. Yay. Yeah, we were excited about it because if there was doubt in anybody's mind that Oakland is a place to be a tech company and start a tech company, the purchase of the building by Uber erased that permanently. So now we're into an era of, okay, what will that be like? Who is going to benefit from the economic upsurge that is going to result and who is not going to benefit? And there's an opportunity to work with Uber. We were early investors in the company. Frida has done work which she can describe uh, over there. And um, I think that was an alley-oop to you about the work that you've been doing with Uber. Uh, Well, several months ago, Uber invited me in to give a talk on hidden bias and how it plays out in tech cultures. And it was open to everybody. And there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Uber employees who came at the the end of the day. It's probably the middle of their day, given the hours that they work. But they were incredibly engaged, and they asked great questions. And for months, I've been getting follow-up questions and emails and saying people still refer to the talk, and they're trying to figure out how to operationalize some of the suggestions that I made. They've hired a fabulous 
uh, head of diversity and inclusion, Damian Hooper Campbell, who's a Morehouse man, by the way, um, and somebody who I have highest regard for. Uh, so I think, look, it's as Mitch said, it's always more difficult to retrofit diversity and inclusion, and especially in a company that's growing as rapidly as they are. But I'm an optimist. So the flip side is they're going to keep growing and growing and growing, and it's never too late to start. So I think there are going to be some interesting interesting programs, and there'll be some opportunity to try things here in Oakland as they move to Oakland that maybe they haven't tried before. So we have lots of ideas about this. There's a set of conventional things they could do, they should do. They should hire locally. They should buy from local suppliers. But we also have some out-of-the-box thinking that we're going to sit down and, and, and present. So, for instance... Uh, Uber drivers uh, could benefit if Uber underwrote going to coding school for some of them because being an Uber driver is a great second job because of the flexibility. You can do child care. You can go to school. I don't think anybody is really saying that the good full-time jobs of the future are going to be driving cars, not when – Technology says we're going to have self-driving cars in a generation. Uber could anticipate this. They could say we want to support our workforce and we're going to help you now and we're also going to help for your future by sending you to coding school or by underwriting that and by making that more possible. And there are some terrific Oakland-based people of color-led training programs in coding that we know and are networked with and we can, we can connect them. So I don't know if that's the right idea or the next one or the next one, but now is the time to be bold and ambitious in thinking about how Uber should be a good citizen in Oakland. That's awesome. That's um, something I'm learning from from doing this reporting is uh, forms of upper mobility through, through, through classes, you know, so maybe you're an Uber driver and that would be more considered uh, along the lines of a blue-collar job. And if you're talking about underwriting somebody's uh, efforts to go to college – that obviously is showing upper mobility um, through technology. Do you have any other examples of that? Well, I think not every Uber driver is going to want to learn to code, but there are many other kinds of skills that they could actually learn and that Uber could underwrite and Uber can help them train for. One of the things in, in talking to Uber drivers all the time, as Mitch said, Uber drivers love their flexibility. I've talked to so many people who said they used to drive a cab or they used to drive for a car service and they had fixed schedules. And so if the classes they wanted to take fell during their, their obligatory hours, they had to not go to school that semester. Now an Uber driver can take any classes he or she wants and drive the other time around it uh, and not drive for a week while it's finals and, and study hard and ace their exams. So Uber has set that model of flexibility, which means there's flexibility about going to school, taking online courses. Uber can use a lot of marketing people, a lot of accountants, a lot of every kind of employee. I've also suggested to some people at Uber that one of the things they can do for their drivers, let's say their drivers are 
older people who've been laid off of other jobs. So we've been talking about Uber drivers who might be young and going to school themselves, but we also have many Uber drivers who are parents, who are older, who might have lost a job in an in another industry, and they may not be as interested in completely starting over. Um, but they are terribly interested, as I talk to them, in educational opportunities for their kids. So one of the things Uber could do, and we're giving Uber as an example, any tech company can think creatively about benefits. But one thing Uber in particular could do for their older drivers is underwrite their kids going to the Smash Academy so that it's still transforming the economics of the family and of the community, and we can aim at different members. One of the things I do in talking, I've talked to so many moms. I mean, most Uber drivers, just in my random experience, are men, but I've had a growing number of women, and they're generally often single moms, and they drive when the kids are in school. And they drive when the kids, they'll, I had a woman recently who drops her kids off after they're ready for bed and she's helped them, you know, fed them dinner and helped them with their homework and they're ready for bed. She drops them off at her mom's house where they spend the night and she drives all night. So she can have hours. She can be with her kids for meals. She can be with her kids for homework. She can completely control her schedule. And she said she looks for when there's surge pricing, and then she goes into San Francisco. That's that's awesome. It sounds like the the efficient economy in practice. Um, you mentioned the transition of economy in general, um, and a lot of attention has been garnered toward technology. Um, we did a little research, and we saw that technology only represents about 3% of jobs in Oakland right now, but it's a growing economy of sorts. Um, I was just wondering, out of curiosity, what do you see that um, – could help technology sustain as an anchor to the economy of Oakland, much in the way that factories did in yesteryear, but not to see them, not to see technology go in the way that factories did of yesteryear. Well, what I would say is that technology, information technology, is infusing every sector of the economy, in manufacturing and food and anything you would care to name. So if you get a technologically literate population, they're going to be better equipped, not just for jobs as software developers, but in the different kind of industries. Because as one famous venture capitalist, Mark Andreessen says, software is eating the world in a somewhat inelegant fashion. So one thing that we can do, and all communities can and should in Oakland in particular, is aspire that all of the children in all of the schools become technically literate, comfortable with computers and digital media and have basic familiarity with how information processing is used everywhere because that's going to be the best preparation for the 21st century economy, not necessarily just being a coder per se. Well, and every small business is needs to be a tech business. If you're a local pizza shop or a restaurant or a beauty shop, you need a website increasingly, you need a way to make a reservation online. You need a way to give feedback uh, about somebody's products and, and services online. So every single storefront in Oakland needs to be tech-enabled. And 
wouldn't it be fabulous to have a homegrown cadre of Oakland people who are trained and maybe start their own business and their clientele are every small business owner in Oakland? Wouldn't that be the coolest ever? And somebody needs to do that. And it's a great business. What do you say to those people who are intimidated of the word tech, knowing that tech is infused in everything? Well, (laughs) I was going to say, I think it's largely a self-solving problem because you don't see many 12-year-olds who are intimidated by tech. We have digital natives and kids growing up with smartphones and everybody is on social media and people of color, in fact, over-index on social media. So that in not too many years, I think it'll just be... Everyone is basically comfortable because everyone has grown up with this. But the other thing is that I do think there's a terribly important role for education and giving kids access because they may not have it in their families. And one of the reasons after-school and out-of-school programs, uh, Black Girls Code and, and many others, are so popular is there's an enormous demand for access Level Playing Field and Cape Center have run youth hackathons in Oakland, a very intensive weekend exposure where kids who have never done anything hands-on come together and over the course of the weekend actually build an app for their smartphone. And it's really amazing to see the creativity that's unleashed if you just give kids that opportunity. And there are some promising things happening in Oakland Unified uh, and with uh, Black Girls Code and many groups really focusing on addressing the access and familiarity issue with Oakland youth. And it would be a shame if that energy dissipated because now is really a moment to go forward on that. It's also been amazing when we run hackathons, and we actually just ran a hackathon in Atlanta, and we ran one in Detroit, but the first hackathons we ran were in Oakland. And as Mitch said, the kids come together for a weekend, and sometimes they're middle schoolers. I mean, they're just unbelievably inspiring. But the charge is, over that weekend, build an app that solves a real problem in your school or community. And What they come up with is just jaw-dropping in both its inspiration and sometimes in its poignancy. So one of the first hackathons we did in Oakland a couple years ago, one group of kids came up with an app that would merge GPS data with real-time crime data so they could walk home from school safely. It just kind of tugs at your heartstrings. And when we talk about hidden bias, let me make a a link back to that. When we talk about bias, kids who've never had to worry about walking home from schools and getting caught in gang crossfire, those kids have a systematic advantage. They have their brain cells solving calculus problems on their way home from school, not strategizing about, am I going to make it home alive? I'm just on on a broad scale. What do you? How are you seeing Oakland change? So we love being in Oakland. We've lived here for about three years. We've had our all of our organizations here for close to four years, and I often describe it to my friends as what America should be. 
it's this effortless diversity when you're getting on BART, when you're walking down the sidewalk, when you go into a restaurant. And there will be sort of a proportional representation of every racial group. There's just a great balance. And it's not that African Americans are at one table and Asian Americans are at another and Latinos are at another. It is that there are tables with all kinds of mixes and across the restaurant as a whole, it looks like the community. That is so rare in this country. And I think it's so critically important to companies hiring diversity. If you're not exposed to and comfortable with people from different backgrounds, then it's going to be harder for coworkers and for teams to mesh. That beautiful picture that you just painted of Oakland, that's what drove me to go on this quest to essentially interview you all. Um, I'm wondering, Oakland's very diverse. Technology or technology jobs, not so much. Who's going to win this tug of war? Well, Oakland's going to win this tug of war because Oakland is going to do technology and gentrification differently. What leads you to believe that? I think there's a unique convergence of factors. It's a historical moment. We've seen gentrification not done right in San Francisco, in Brooklyn, in other communities. Um, the demographics of Oakland and of the country are shifting. Last year, the 2014-2015 school year was the first year in U.S. history that where the majority of kids in school were kids of color. That trend is not reversing. That is the workforce. Those, those are kids that are going to be your employees in a very short amount of time. So I think Oakland's history, Oakland's vibrancy, Oakland's ability to organize um, for change, I think all of those strands will come, come to play. I think you answered three questions in one. My, my final question, uh, going back to something I mentioned earlier, and I, I think it's just a profound thought of how much of yourself do you bring to the workplace. I was wondering, uh, with your experience and your experience, I actually want to, I believe you bring all of yourself to the workforce, but um, what, how, what percentage of yourself do you bring to the workplace and what, why do you hold any back, if so? Oh, I'm, I'm all in. I think if I were just investing like in virtual reality startups, and I'm still a geek, I love, I love new tech, I, I'd be partially retired because after several decades, the shine of new tech for the sake of new tech begins to wear off. On the other hand, the opportunity to do something that makes a difference in the lives of people and brings about change for the better and helps improve the economy and helps improve opportunities for everybody to participate and benefit. At this stage in my life, I can't imagine doing anything more meaningful. So I'm just all in. What percentage do you bring to the workplace? Well, I bring all of myself to work, and I suspect that some of my colleagues wish I didn't. Um, I don't check anything at the door. Uh, and so I really value helping workplaces 
um, become cultures not where anything goes, but that are really welcoming and inclusive and respectful. So that really help people be authentic, be genuine, where everybody wants to come to work, where everybody can talk about what's going on, what's weighing on their mind. If something terrible is happening in their family and how can their coworkers help? That we really often expect people to show up at work as if they have nothing else going on. And that's ridiculous and it's unfair and it's disproportionately burdensome for those with fewer resources. So I think we really want to make sure that companies understand engaged employees mean your whole self comes to work. Thank you. You're welcome.